Hello, I'm James George and welcome to Life in Football, the podcast that interviews top professionals working in different fields within our beautiful game. If you love football and dream about working full-time in sport, or if you're just a little bit nosy, then you've come to the right place. This week I'm joined by Tom Cook, who works in sports psychology with Millwall Football Club's Academy. This is a great insight into the mental side of sport. Hi Tom, how are you today? Hi James, I'm well, I'm well, thank you very much. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Just had a uh, a very long round playing golf, but I am very good. So Tom, tell us, what is your role at Millwall? So at Millwall, I look after the, the psychology department. I look after the sort of the mental strategies and really talk to the players, the coaches, the support staff about that mental side of the game. So I've worked with Millwall as a sports psychologist in training. So I have been working there for three years now. My training will come to the point of qualification in around about 18 months' time. So that's given me the opportunity to work from the under nines, so the really little ones, um, which sometimes looks more like uh, organised chaos, let's just call it that, uh, all the way up to the under 23s. So obviously we're now talking professional deals, uh, lads that think that, that that is going to be their career. They are almost that one step away from the first team. So day to day, what what does that job actually entail then? Talk us through a, a normal day at Millwall. So a normal day at Millwall will be arrive before any of the players. So coaches will get in, support staff will get in and we'll have like that sort of daily brief. That's where you'll see conversations around injuries, sort of how well people have reacted maybe across the week. If we can be getting them back into training, maybe even back into fixtures on the weekend. So we'll get a little bit of a conversation between the medical team and the coaching team and then the coaches will understand what the objectives of the day are and then as a result we'll start to entwine that with the snc so where they're going to be going into the gym again the objectives there and then my role will also have a little snippet in the afternoon where we'll talk to the boys in a in a group sense usually sort of working along our psychological syllabus that we've built within the academy um and then really from there we'll see the boys turn up that would be the 18, so sort of like the 17s, 18s, the scholars. To be fair, they'll, they'll come in, start doing their jobs, because at Millwall, we ensure that our scholars have a little bit of responsibility, that they are part of the club and they're maybe putting the hoover over, they're getting the equipment out. We, we really install that sense of responsibility. So they, we're not spoon-feeding them everything. They come in and they have certain roles and we expect them to be looking after that um, as a result. And then just before sort of about mid-afternoon we'll get them out training so my role there is to go out have conversations with the coach start to see players and I might be working with some of these players individually and it might be to observe some of the things that we've been talking about so activation stages some of the mental strategies that they might use just getting into the day as a result Um, and then yeah heavily observation looking out for any players that we feel are doing well on the pitch and we might see that in training anyone that might be struggling as well we might see that come across in training and that might highlight something maybe for myself to go and have a conversation with the player um so that's really the morning quite relaxed really we're spending a lot of time with the scholars so we're obviously we're talking about boys that are pushing for that professional contract um that will be coming out around march or april time so those lads really are, are focusing 
for the league that they're playing in and, of course, the pro contract at the end. Like I've mentioned, we'll move into the afternoon and, and then I've got the opportunity to sit down with the boys in a group sense. Now, that could be in a classroom. We could be delivering like a presentation, but I'm very keen as a, practice, as a practitioner to get them out in the field. So we've had them out on the AstroTurf before and we build conditions, set them, set them challenges and, and see how they respond psychologically in, in some, of those, uh, some of those moments. We're really quite keen on putting competition and pressure upon the boys to see how they respond as a result. Um, and then a, a standard day we'll see five o'clock come round and then we start to see the schoolboys come in. Um, so we might have four different age groups come in. We'll probably have two of the younger ones and two of the older ones. So again, my, from my job, I get to see one side of the, the sort of development scale, really young, lots of fun, building fundamentals. And then over on the other side of the pitch, you'll see maybe under 15, 16. So again, we're talking structured football, very sort of, different language you'll hear as a result over that side so very technical very tactical um and sort of training these lads to develop their game and, and also win matches as well um so that's probably around about like a, a standard day that you might find within the academy system and will football club coaches etc actually come to you and say can you have a word with this player this there might be something going on can you have a word of him does that often happen it does. Um, so coaches will come up to me and sometimes it's almost in a moment where they'll see something and they'll say, to be honest, Tom, I don't like that in that player. It could be, and like I've mentioned at Millwall, we're quite keen to build conditions that challenge the players. So we do have some players that are, we'd say are emotional. They are sometimes walking a fine line between that composure and maybe responding to an event. So sometimes we call the complete wrong decision. So we'll say, the ball's that way and we'll do that against players that we feel might respond and, and if they fall in our trap we are looking to challenge these players then a player and then a coach might go well there we go we're, we're trying to challenge that and, and we can see that he's still reacting maybe in a way that is negative because that's only going to affect the next involvement he might have because he might be a little bit frustrated a little bit annoyed um, so coaches do come up they say in a moment I didn't like that. They might even go, well, actually, we've found that this player is struggling. We think that this has been going on for a little while. So could you speak to him? Let's see if we can support him in another aspect of his game, maybe psychological. Um, and then also, that, of course, we've got the other side of psychology where they might say, this lad's doing really, really well. And actually, we want to move him up an age group. But Tom, that might bring up new conversations. Maybe they're a big fish in a small pond at that moment, but they might need a little bit of help taking that step into could be like a 21s or 23s environment. So they, they, they definitely spot some things that they want to share with me. And, and it's great to be on the training pitch with them because we can have the conversations live and, and while we watch it happen. And now the, I, one of the issues with sports psychology is the fact that often players are kind of against it and and aren't forthcoming when they probably do need help. Uh, I, I mean, I just had a round of golf today and hit an amazing front nine, fell apart in the second nine, and I continually do it. I often, you know, struggle on the psychology of sport. It's a massive, massive thing. Look at penalty shootouts, for example, how we as Britons, as English people, struggle with penalty shootouts, whereas other nations don't. There's some, that's, that's purely psychology. 
And so do you find that people actually come to you ever? Um, do you find that players actually you know, understand your role and come to you for help? Not so much as coaches. So I would expect sort of like eight in 10 players to come to me through a physio. So as a result of an injury, for example, a coach has put them forward. Maybe their parent has a real big interest in it as well. So therefore, it is rather unlikely that players say, oh, can I sit down with you? Um, this is going really good and I want to talk about it or this isn't going as well as I want it to. So let's talk about it. And I think, James, you've got a really good point there where psychology, I think, is still in the stage where sort of like the players are understanding it and they feel like, well, actually, if I speak to Tom, am I looking weak? Am I going to talk about things that, well, I'm not too proud of, for example, I'm not doing very well. And that's either a player maybe realizing they're not doing very well or just talking to someone about it. That's maybe uh, an uncomfortable thing when we're talking about football academy environments, which are very competitive. Uh, sometimes they don't want to show any weakness because they feel like that's not the environment to do so, which, of course, isn't what we encourage. We want players to be very open, but it's not always the case. I know outside of, of football, you can also help anyone in, in, in sport. You also work with players individually outside of Millwall, is that correct? Yep. So I work with um, players in sort of like step two. So we're talking semi-pros as well. So older players. And yes, we I work across academies and the women's game as well. So see quite a different spectrum. So obviously with some grassroots players at a really young age as well and understanding what they might want from sports psychology compared to maybe a player playing at step two nearing the end of their career um, and just seeing how they can maintain a career as a result adding to their mental game as well so uh, yeah cover a little bit of a little bit of football and if I've got a goal scorer as an example one of the players we manage um, I'm, I'm quite lucky that the one I'm even thinking of scoring a lot of goals at the moment, so it's not an issue. But say, for example, he stops scoring, and uh, I believe that it, you know, it could be confidence, which obviously is is a psychological thing. What kind of things would you do to try and help him score more goals? I think the first thing is talking about what is going on in their head. So, what are the thoughts they're going on because they're a striker that's not scoring will see their self-talk go exceptionally negative. For example, they'll be going out and saying things like, well, I have to score today. So absolute, so I have to score. I missed loads of sitters last week. Why didn't I score that one? That was an easy chance. I'm letting my team down. So suddenly, some of the language and the dialogue with, that we're actually talking to ourselves with is very negative and it's And we're almost being our biggest critic at that point. So for myself, we could talk about some of those for example I have to score today I'd ask a player well as a striker if you don't score is that always a bad performance and sometimes they'll say yes some but actually we want them to understand that scoring is fantastic and it is part of a, a striker's role but actually you can play well without always getting your to your name on that score sheet so I like to break it down well I want to score a goal, but what do you need to do to score goals? Maybe that is, I need to call for the ball more. Maybe I need to make more runs in behind. Sometimes I need to shoot. Because if they're struggling with confidence, it might be making that conscious effort. I am going to take that. I am going to pull the trigger today. 
and I'm not going to pass it off maybe. Um, and, and some of those things, by breaking it down, we make it a lot more manageable. It's quite difficult to go into a game and say, well, I have to score. But actually, if we're saying, well, I want to make runs in behind. I want to call for the ball and get it in the box. Maybe it could be, I want to combine with my striker today. So we change the objectives from such a rigid and difficult task. If everyone wanted to score and, and, and did so, we'd see some pretty entertaining football up and down the country, to say the least. So we'd make it a little bit easier. And, and sometimes I'd work with strikers and i say, right, well, in the warm-up, I want you to hit the net five times. I don't care if that's, there's no goalkeeper in it or if that is in a shooting drill in the warm-up, but get that feeling of striking the ball, the ball hitting the net, and that will also help they'll start to see that and feel it on the pitch. And that might lend itself towards the idea of sort of like visualizing success. And that would sort of take that mindset or, or some of the self-talk towards that positive place that we want them to be. Visualization, you just mentioned it there. It's massive in a lot of other sports. Uh, Formula One, for example, a, a driver will sit there and visualize the, you know, the whole lap before he does qualifying um, when he does a race, you know, he'll actually visualise the whole race. A golfer should, you know, visualise every shot before he hits it. I know tennis players will try and visualise a whole game, what might happen in a match. Football players generally don't do that. So is is that, do you think that could be an important part of confidence and a way of a footballer preparing for a match? I think it's really important for confidence, but I also think it's good to for that mental preparation. Because it's a dynamic sport, it's a team game football, and I think some players get wrapped up in the changing room antics, which is loud music playing, chatting to friends, but actually, and, and coaches will see it, we start to ask the question, well, are they mentally engaged? Almost that idea of, well, when does a player switch on? And visualising helps give that trigger. And a really important thing, and you'll probably find it in Formula One, they'll do their visualisation on the track. Or they'll sit in the car and do it with the with the wheel in their hands. Exactly the same with golfers. Actually, that stepping up for the shot, it's sort of 10, 30 seconds just before they take it is when they're going to switch on. So I think for a footballer, it's quite interesting because you go out to warm up. Maybe you walk the pitch before. Then you're in the changing rooms. Actually, it's just I'd encourage a player to find that moment in time. And it could be walking the pitch. So I'm stood on it. This is where I'm going to be playing today. And this is what it could look like. And maybe that's when visualization comes in. And I have it with lots of players where they say, oh, I can't do that because I've never been there. I don't know what the pitch looks like. So that's why it's important to actually couple these together. Reality, which is when you're there, and also what they want to see. Start to put yourself on that pitch and start to play out some scenarios that are successful. And Millwall, just one of hundreds of clubs that are, you know, do have sports psychologists. I know years ago there was zero around. I think Sam Allardyce was one of the first ones to introduce it after I read his book, and he went to, uh, I think it was play at the end of his career at, at Tampa Bay um, in Tampa Bay, and they were actually living with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And in NFL, they were doing lots of things and that completely differently to us. One of them was sports psychology, and he brought it over. But right now, Premier League, Championship League One, League Two, does everyone have a sports psychology department or? is you know tell us a bit about that so 
a lot do um and the pathways to sports psychology is actually getting stronger so i'm with the british psychological society you could also go through bases which a lot of like your snc your physiotherapists go through so sort of like a very sports science based approach and so we are seeing lots of sports psychologists coming through university and so interestingly you'll probably find there are more rigid requirements in other sports that maybe provide opportunities football is interesting because only category one provide or require a full-time sports psychologist whereas step two so category two um they just need a psychological syllabus so for example that could be someone who goes in I don't know, once a month, maybe once every two months. But as long as there looks like there's a, there's psychological support and that is all they require and it continues to sort of dilute down. So you do you will see it because there's a lot coming through, but sort of the requirement isn't actually particularly high. Um, so it comes down to the club's own initiative. Do, do they buy in? Do they see that as something that they want to provide? And I think that the recent investment into player care will hopefully drag sports psychology with it because they couple up exceptionally well. Player care looking after the sort of transitions that players go through inside and outside of the academy. Um, and hopefully sports psychology is, is brought with it to that stage where we can see this is a must. I mean, you're going to every academy up and down the country and they'll teach on a four-corner approach, sort of that tech pack, physical and psych psychological and social. So it's we can see it's important, but maybe it's uh, it's not being required as much as something like technical or tactical. And in order to get a job like yourself, um, what kind of you know university education, etc., will you need to, to get? So the pathway for, for myself and what I'm on has been undergraduate, um, an undergraduate in sport and exercise psychology. So that's three years. Um, that will therefore open the door to a master's again in sport and exercise psychology. And then you will go on to, like I mentioned, so a pathway. So I'm with the BPS, the British Psychological Society. Now that will take me sort of four to five years. Um, and there's another pathway um, that you could do a basis, which will take you sort of two to three. Um, so yeah, by the end of that, for myself, it will be almost like eight years in training, nine years in training. So Plus A levels and GCSEs, it's yeah a, a long yeah. road in education to to where you want to get to, and long term, yeah. where would you ideally like to go with this? Um, you know, what what's your long term plans with this? I love working in the academy. I love working with the variety of ages we see them come through, and they're just full of enjoyment and passion for the sport. And then we, that's fantastic to see. And, and working with them is like a a fresher breath there because we almost come away from performance um, unfortunately of course there are similar challenges such as pressure and I'm sure we've seen documentaries that showcase young children and they still feel under pressure from maybe parents or coaches um, and then working with sort of the 18 to 23 stepping into professional gives a completely new light as well we're looking for performances I've been with the first team to observe that environment as well and, and that's a very much results-based so I think I enjoy the academy aspect. I would love to explore other sports. I think sort of athletics is very interesting, something like the Olympic Games, because when we're talking, the top of the top, the highest pressures, a four-year cycle. And when we talk about 
I mean, I know, James, that you had a back nine today that you might be able to rectify next week, but we're talking about Olympians that have got to wait four years to maybe say, well, actually, I didn't perform there, and, and what a psychological journey that is. Um, so I think that's something of interest as well. So I know you've mentioned to me that you could help with potentially the players that we've got in our system. So with the first meeting, talk me through what you would go through with you know some of the players that we've got in our books. I think the first meeting is is crucial because, like you've already mentioned, psychology sometimes feels like it's an area where we're pulling you up because something is wrong. It's quite difficult to manage to, that that to say, well, actually, we would like you to speak to this person. Uh, and it not come across like we're being critical, potentially. So the first session is really important. I do my best to make it seem like I'm a, a normal enough guy. And actually, I usually just ask them, well, who do they support? Because And then I'm always like, well, actually, I want to be, just in case uh, they support a rival team of mine, not too many sort of Milton Keynes or, or Northampton fans I end up uh, working with. But I try and make sure that it's quite fun, especially if I'm working with a, with a young uh, athlete or footballer maybe so understanding a little bit about them always want to hear about their journey in the sport that might bring up why they started why they love the sport if there's been I mean if it's football there's always the likelihood that they've gone into a club and maybe come out of it and that's of interest as well so understanding a little bit of their backstory and then they might have been put forth for this by yourself James parents coaches but I want, and I'll have probably by that point had those conversations with these, with that support circle. But I want to know what's their understanding of psychology. Why do they think it could help? And, and, and really, what aspects do they see in their game? Sometimes we see players that have really good awareness and they're like, well, actually, I know I don't control my emotions very well. And I think this could be something we talk about. And sometimes they're not too sure and, and we'll explore it a little bit more. Obviously, so we, we work with um, a lot of people who are young, who are trying to get that first contract. Um, mm. and then we work with players who have been at clubs that have got released quite often. And then you obviously have injuries. So talk us through maybe a little bit that you could help with those three scenarios. So if we start with someone who's seeking a contract, because then they're coming in with an objective, which is always important. Setting goals is, is going to define our next step, our next week and sort of our next session. But so if they're looking for a contract, we are, I'm, I'm therefore probably thinking, well, we're working with a little bit of performance. There's going to be anxiety because they've put so much into this and they might feel there's some pressure as a result. So what we'd want to do is talk about, well, if a contract is at this point, let's work it back. What sort of things are going to help you get that contract? So we understand the big picture to get a contract, scholarship, pro, whatever it may be. But let's talk about, well, what's the next three months? What sort of objectives would be excellent to hit at this point? Because then we're tracking progress, and that's really important, especially in a, an academy system, let's say, where the months slip by, December might be busy at the beginning, but then Christmas goes by. It's really important for, I find, young talent to be tracking their progress. So are we on course for that sort of contract? And for myself, if we are pursuing contracts and when it gets to about a month before, I always make that player write a to themselves, so like a letter to themselves, and it's going to be a positive one. So to blah, like well done on securing your scholarship. 
maybe they'll say some who they thank, why they got it, positive reasons, and maybe moving forwards. But then I want them to write another letter. And this is to themselves again. And I want it to be the negative outcome. I want them to write themselves a letter that says, unfortunately, we weren't offered the scholarship. And when they do this exercise, they then come up with reasons. But my parents still love me. I still love the sport. I'm a good player, even if I didn't get the scholarship. And actually, this is what I'm going to do going forwards. So what we find is they, just through a little exercise like that, they were, for myself, it's really important to talk about the fact that you could get it and you could not. We need to be quite realistic as a result. It's coming up to a decision and it could go one way or the other. And I find that an exercise like that enables them to explore things that they don't want to talk about, such as not getting it, but find reasons. And, and doing this, after the decision, I get them to read the reality. Whatever came true, read that letter. And how do you feel? Sort of closing that circle of, you got it, well done. And this is what you said to yourself, and let's move forward. Or, unfortunately, you didn't get it. But this is what you wrote to yourself a month ago. This is what you said. How can we move forward from here? So it's just trying to manage a really difficult journey when we're pushing for contracts, giving them realistic goals to work towards, giving them exercises, because as we approach this, the emotions really ramp up, the anxiety, the nerves. Um, so just enabling them to manage it through either sessions or exercises like that. And what about a player ju just been released? So they've been at a professional club, maybe scholar second year scholar just being released or maybe they got a, a contract and at the end of it they've been released um what would you do to try and help them i think with something like that i'd want to understand what is their direction i've worked with players that got released went to another club got rejected went to another club got rejected and sometimes we just want to know well what do you want to do that's always my first question sometimes it's a scholar or someone who's going for a scholar and didn't get it. And then they might start to think, well, actually, maybe there's grassroots that might lead to semi-pro teams. And maybe they don't want to play. Maybe there's a new direction that they want to go in. And I want to put their best interest. I want to know what they think their next step is. Um, because that's important. It's difficult to be rejected. And I want to manage that as a result. Understand their emotions, how they're feeling. I'm not here to say that didn't go very well, but this team could be interested. There's lots of people out there that will do that for them. But I want to manage that emotional journey that they're going on. Some of that, so that how that self-talk might change after a rejection. And sometimes players are, are really good and surprise me and they're like, that's fine. They didn't want me, but I know I'm a good player and maybe I didn't fit that system. So, Let's move on this direction. And it's very clear that I'd then be working with a player and I'm saying, okay, now I want to help you transition into a club, but that's going to include a trial. And that's an interesting period where we've got, okay, well, let's talk about what a first session on a trial looks like. Because for them, I'm expecting them to start putting expectations really high. It has to be perfect. I have to play the best I have, I've ever done so. And of course, they might do that, they might not. So really managing the emotions and the experiences throughout that sort of period, because it's difficult. They won't be the only ones who have been rejected. Again, it's a competitive market in that sort of, maybe that limbo between clubs. And then if they do come out and find that actually it's a different direction they want to go in, 
that's also something that I've managed. And it's just that enabling them a sort of space to talk about things. And sometimes it's easier for them to talk to someone that's not a parent, for example, or a coach, because I think they expect that they have to just continue to go into football, but that's not always the case. That's really interesting. And it's been an absolutely interesting podcast for me. Um, I find I find all of this very interesting indeed. And before we go, we always try and find out if you've got any interesting or funny stories. It could be from, you know, your time at Millwall. We obviously can't mention players' names. Or it could be from just, you know, other parts of your, your studying or whatever. But have you got any funny or interesting stories you can share with us? I think probably one that made me laugh the most and, and probably caught me out the most was... Myself and a coach were, were working or wanting to work with a player. We could see and a player within our system, very, very talented, um, highly emotional. So we could see that if we helped him with that, we could really be on to something here. Like the talent is there, just a little guidance in regards to his emotions and his attitudes. We could really see a player push on. And, and he was already being spoke about at a high level in, in regards to sort of like uh, pro contract early offers and so um, so we managed to sit him down we, and he was quite keen and we were like excellent he wants to talk to me um, coach is here which is great and he said yep I've been waiting to have this conversation so we sat down I was like we're finally going to see some progress here and um, pretty much the first thing he said he was like right so so there's this girl and I was like right I was like this wasn't the direction I thought we were going in so it just shows that as a as a sports psych, sometimes I'm talking about football. Sometimes they see me as this other attitude and, and this other person. And we ended up talking for about 20 minutes how he was going to manage a relationship at school uh, with a girl that was quite interested. So, um, yeah, you I never bet know. that plays a big part of it. I bet it does. Part of your job. Um, the Absolutely. funny thing is, is I actually say that when I often chat to young lads and parents and I'm like, look, we are here to help support him with his football career, but I'm sure there's going to be times when things happen outside of his football that you probably can't talk to you guys about. And, you know, that's one of the, often one of the things that we say to them is, you know, have you got a girlfriend? Um, are you willing to move to the other side of the country and leave that girlfriend? Would they potentially go with you? There's, there's more than just football that often comes into, uh, you know, a footballer's career and different options for them. Absolutely. And I always factor in, like, we've got a really good education part and we put a real emphasis on school. Um, obviously, they want to be footballers, but we can't forget that they are young adolescents um, and, and they, they might show an interest into relationships and, and everything else like that. So uh, it was it was one of those where we had lined up this really good session and then, um, it, yeah, it all went off on a tangent, to say the least. Well, Tom, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was really fascinating getting you on and I look forward to chatting to you more in the future because it's a really interesting subject. Excellent. No, I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much, James. So that's it for season one of the Life in Football podcast. Thanks for listening and we will be back in the new year for a new season.